right? Poetry, as we're going to get to, um, is not normal language. If you've ever taken a class on literature, as I have, once you get to the part of poetry, you're like, what are we talking about? Um, I, we don't, sometimes we don't like poetry because it makes us uncomfortable because we actually have to use our brains to try to understand what the author is trying to communicate. And so I, I use... Um, hold on, I'm sorry. I'm getting text messages on my computer and I don't need to be getting that right now. Um, and so um, I'm, we're going we're gonna to do... Um, a test case, right? I had a professor in college. She had a son who was a professional artist, or he was an artist by profession. Um, and one time he had, he had drawn this, um, this piece of artwork, and she walked in, and she looked at it for about two seconds. And she goes, so tell me what it means. And his response to her, because she taught Scripture, she taught New primarily the New Testament, he goes, how mad would you be if your students looked at Scripture and in two seconds just asked, what is this about? There's a reason that artwork, that in museums there are benches in front of artwork. It's so that you can sit and look at it. So you can sit and try to understand what the artist is trying to communicate. So we're going to do a test case. This is a very famous painting. One minute, we're going to sit and we're going to look at this artwork. That's only been 20 seconds. Ms. Gale, you can't leave when we're doing the test project. That was one minute. What was something that you gathered towards the end that you didn't see at the beginning? Anyone want to share? The big, the, the big thing in the front? In, in the front? Yep. Yep. Okay. What else did we notice? The church right in the middle? Yep. It's a pretty tall steeple. So, of course, most of you probably know this is The Starry Night um, by um, Vincent van Gogh. It was on an oil painting, and it was actually a picture drawn right after he got out of a sane asylum. This mountain, which looks like a mountain, is actually supposed to be trees. And this is what um, so, someone wrote that knows a lot more about art than I do. Um, 
The oil canvas painting is dominated by the night sky rolling in chromatic blue swirls, a glowing yellow crescent moon, and stars rendering as radiant orbs. One or two cypress trees, often described a flame-like tower over the foreground on the left, the dark branches curling and swaying to the movement of the sky that they partly obscure. Amid the animation, a structured village sits in the distance on the lower right of the canvas. Straight, straight controlled lines make up the small cottages and slender steeple of the church, which rises as a beacon against the rolling blue hills. The glowing yellow squares of the houses suggest welcoming lights of peaceful homes, creating a calm corner for, of the painter's turbulence. Who got that? Right, right. I, 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 I'm so glad someone wrote that because I, I, I didn't get that um, from that painting. But look, look at this picture. Yep, right, right. So this is just a picture. This isn't a painting. But we can describe this picture in many different ways. We can describe this picture as it looks like it's very cold there. Right? That's what we'd call normal language. Or we could use scientific language. It's definitely below 32 degrees here. And if the wind condition is right, it probably feels colder. Or we can describe this with poetic language. It is no wonder people look circumspect against the white, sharp-edged, darkly filled, the creature's heat being closely hoarded under, the necessary coats of scarves pulled tight, the element is dazzled and complete, the floor they tread is bright. Right. <laughs> right. So we can use different language to describe the exact same picture. We can use ordinary language. We can use scientific language, or we can use poetic language. These often are categorized in phenomenological language. This is how we speak. So we, we, in normal speech, we say the sun rises in the east. That is bad scientific language because the sun doesn't rise. What happens? The earth is rotating and we're seeing the sun as if it is rising out of the east. We can, but at the same time, we can use poetic language. Scientific language aims to be a higher level of detail with as little ambiguity as possible. It's trying to specifically talk about the inner workings of what it is describing. Yet poetic language aims to allow the reader to imagine what it's like to experience what is being described. Even if the, what it describes isn't real, we are meant to experience it. C.S. Lewis says, this is the most re remarkable of the powers of poetic language, to convey to us the quality of experiences which have not been had or perhaps can never be had 
to use factors within our own experience so that it became pointers to something outside of our experience. But something that we cannot do is to, under, is to think that somehow scientific language or even phenomenological language is more true than poetic language. Poetic language often expresses emotion for its own sake in order to grab us in with all of our emotions. So, test case. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is not scientific language. This is poetry. This is designed to encapsulate our emotion, our affections, so that we can experience the same thing that the author is experiencing. And we can see that poetry sometimes uses different types of structures. So this is um, a parallel structure. The heavens and the skies above isn't necessarily describing the exact same thing, but it allows the poet, the writer, to expand his meaning while speaking of the exact same thing. The heavens and the skies above aren't synonyms. The same way, to declare the glory of God, proclaiming his handiwork, it's allowing the author to give a broader and expansive vision of what they are describing. If we were to read all poetry or all literature in the Bible, we would expect an earth that actually looks like this. An earth that has an underworld set up on the pillars of the earth. And there's the ocean of heaven and the heaven of heavens. And so often we come to scripture with this scientific understanding and reading of everything. And we are demanding of the text something that the text is not trying to express. It comes in poetic language to describe Something that's true, but not with the type of language that we're used to or accustomed to. So, next test, test case. One minute. Let's look at Psalm 42.
right. What happens when we actually sit with God's word? So what, what, what came out? What came out farther than the first reading, after the first reading? But we can relate to this, right? We've experienced, we've all experienced this before. That's what a song like Psalm 43 can give us. It's easy for us to identify with the author of this because we have experienced what he's experiencing. And if we haven't, we should. If you haven't experienced hope in God, you should. And we shall praise him for his salvation. So this is from our text this morning. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, for which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. We can read this and find very true truths. But yet, if we read this text and just sit in this text, no one wants to experience this. That's what the author, that's what Micah is trying to establish. When the Lord discusses his judgment, and if we actually sit in and experience what the author wants us to experience, all of us should automatically say, I don't want this. How do I get this removed? Now, poetry deals a lot with themes and grammar and Hebrew syntax. So last week in Micah 1, almost every single one of Micah's um, declarations on those eight cities all used a play on the Hebrew that involved words that sounded like the city's name. That didn't come across quite, quite as well in the English translation, but... These are what the poets are trying to explain. This is what the prophets, prophets primarily spoke in poetic language. You know, we're good Presbyterians. We don't like a lot of emotion. But are we reading the scriptures as God intended us to read these scriptures? All right, so that's poetry. Now we get to the wisdom literature. And if you thought um, poetry was hard, Hebrew wisdom is readily recognized, but is very difficult to define. So in your books, um, there, there is a um, short little um, 
definition of what um, wisdom, biblical wisdom actually is. And this is actually taken, um, it was actually written by my seminary professor. Uh, and so I have this written all throughout my notes when I took Psalms Wisdom um, and um, Psalms Wisdom and Literature. Um, but biblical wisdom might be defined as a skill in the art of godly living. That orientation which allows one to live harmonious accord with God's ordering of the world. Wisdom is basically common sense. This is why it can be so hard when we read the Proverbs. If we read it in a scientific way to say, well, the author says one thing here and he says what. The, the exact opposite here. How are we to hold these two truths in light of each other? Well, almost every time the context in, what, in which what is said is different. Wisdom literature is to teach us how we are in, to interpret God's world in the way that God intended his world to be and in light of our sin and the sinfulness of others. Very rarely is there a one-to-one correlation. And for people living in the technology world, or the technology age, we hate that. Because we want to ask Google, what should we do when? And the Bible doesn't give us a, this is what you should do. This is a way of living, it tells us. This is what you should look for. This is what you should try to do. So wisdom literature is primarily in Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Blake did a really great job taking us through Ecclesiastes, and he really held in tension these ideas of wisdom and how we're supposed to live our lives. I don't know if that's too small. This is Proverbs 31. Typically, Proverbs 31 is known for what a biblical um, woman, a description of a biblical woman. But actually, the first nine verses are describing what a biblical king should look like. It's It's written by a mother to her son, the mother of King Lemuel. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and prevent the right of the afflicted. Now, is, it, is, is, Psalm 30, is Proverbs 31, is it saying that a king should not drink? Wine or strong drink? No. It's just describing what the life of a king would look like if he was ruled by his strong drink or his wine. He would forget to be a king. He would forget how to properly order God's world as he intended it to be. It would cause him to forget those who are in poverty. 
who have no mouth, who have no voice to speak for themselves. It would cause the king to not be a good judge and defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Very much like some of the, the, the narrative in the Old Testament, the wisdom literature doesn't tell us what to do. It describes what godly living looks like. And guess what? It's hard to know. It's also impossible to know if you don't read it. If we aren't saturated with the word, we will miss out on the way that God, we will miss out on the skill of the art of godly living. Psalms. I'll ask, are there any questions? Because, you know, poetry and wisdom are so easy to... Both of my definitions were basically, these are hard to describe. All right, the Psalms. I could easily, if you've been here long enough, I could easily spend entire Sunday school, if not more, just on the Psalms. So the Psalms are, are the Psalter... Um, um, is the fundamentally the hymn book for the people of God during the worship. There's there's songs. So if if it's perfectly okay for us to pray the Psalms, but the Psalms aren't prayers. The 150 Psalms were given. It, so the the Psalms are God's one of these, right? When we sing, typically we come to the Trinity Hymnal. Almost all of our first hymns in our service are found in the Trinity Hymnal. When God's people in the Old Testament came together for corporate worship, the Psalter was what they had. They sang the Psalms. And very much like poetry, songs and the Psalms were to elicit emotion found in biblical truths of who God was and what he had done for his people. So there, there and I, I say that because there are different types of psalms. There are laments, um, which is the vast majority um, of, of the psalms. For the people of God to go and lay their troubles before the Lord, asking him for help. And I have to be honest, as, as the pastor of this church, we don't do a good job singing songs like that. We sing a lot of songs of Christ has won our victory, but we don't do a very good job of singing. And honestly, our Trinity hymnal doesn't have a lot of songs of lament in them. Of saying, our hope is only found in the Lord. And it's okay to experience the sufferings of this world. But we have a God who hears us, even in our songs. We have lots of hymns of praise. Whose primary goal is to call and enable God's people to adore God's great attributes and deeds. Hymns of thanksgiving. 
showing our thankfulness before the Lord. We're going to talk about Thanksgiving this morning in our sermon. Hymns of celebrating God's law. So we're actually using this in our call to worship. We're actually um, using a psalm from, or part of, the, of Psalm 19, 119. There are hymns of praise. Oh, sorry. Um, wisdom psalms. There are songs of confidence. There are royal psalms, which can always be kind of tricky to interpret. Are we supposed to be David? Or is David representing the people? Or is David representing God? Right? As the covenant mediator, he had those two primary functions. We had historical psalms, um, recapping um, the history of the people. Psalm 78, and I think, isn't it the Psalm of Moses? Isn't that Psalm 90? Psalm 90 is uh, basically a redemptive historical recounting of what God had done for his people. Tom, can you go back into that? I, I, I backed out, or I'm, I'm at the end of my, my slideshow. Thank you. Oh, I did. Oh, there we go. And there are prophetic hymns. What's interesting is a lot of the Psalms, you can actually hear the words of the prophets being sung as God's redemptive, as something that God's people would sing together. And so the Psalms um, is, a, is a different t- type of literature set apart from the rest of the scriptures. But here's what's so great about the Psalms. They were supposed to transform God's people because they were always intended to be done in corporate worship. Now, you've, as I said, if you've been here long enough, you've heard me talk. And we're going to spend the summer, this summer, we're going to spend in the Psalms, um, which I'm really excited about. There's lots of things in the Psalms that I can't relate with. There's lots of things in the Psalms that I actually don't want to sing. But these are songs that are supposed to be sung with the people of God standing shoulder to shoulder next to each other. And sometimes I won't feel like singing this. But yet as God's people, we come and we sing it together. Meaning, sometimes we sing on the behalf of other people. Sometimes, if one of us isn't lamenting, we need someone who is lamenting to sing on our behalf. And sometimes someone who's lamenting needs someone else to sing on their behalf. Because the Psalter ultimately is conforming God's people to look like Him. to fulfill what he has called them to be, a people set apart and holy. A people who recognize who their creator is and what he has done for them. Right? That's what historic psalms are. We wouldn't be a people if it wasn't for you, Yahweh. Let's retell the stories. Let's sing of these stories together. Let us, I mean... Almost a lot of us have children. Um, 
my children memorize lyrics to songs better than any any human beings I've ever found. Because Jessica has introduced them to so many songs. Um, because Jessica memorizes music. What better way to train our children than to teach them good theology through song? Songs of celebration. These are the things that God has done for his people. Even though they have been faithless, he is still faithful. Sometimes we need each other to remind us of those type of songs. Of who God really is. They're given to recreate us but to establish us as a people together. Yes, we are individuals singing this, but we are meant to be heard singing in one voice in unison as a unified people of God. The prophet Isaiah gives us a very great picture at the end of his book of that the assembly of God will be made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation. That the peoples of all the world will come into the assembly of God. And what does the assembly of God do? There are people that sing. There are people that sing of the great redemption that they have found in Yahweh. Because they are his people and he is their God. So whether we're talking about poetry, whether we're talking about um, wisdom literature, or whether, whether we're talking about the Psalms, the way we read all of this text depends on a few things. We have to read the author for what he's trying to say. But we also have to know that the author of every single book of this Bible is trying to change us to be the people that God intended us to be. Recreated by his word. Whether it's through a narrative, whether it's through singing. Anyone have any questions?